Hi, I'm Hallie, and I'm here to welcome you to The Odd Life, that's spelled A-W-E-D, which stands for Awake, Well, and Empowered. You see, I feel that women who are living odd have such important stories that need to be heard so they can inspire us to find our own oddness. I want this to be a space where you come to laugh, cry, feel inspired, and most of all, feel more connected to yourself and the women in this odd life community. I'll be talking with women who are practitioners, authors, experts, entrepreneurs, creatives, coaches, philanthropists, and so many more, as well as doing solo casts to bring you what you need when you need it. No matter where you are on your journey in this life, why not go through it odd AF? Again, I'm your host, Hallie, and this is the Odd Life Podcast. Welcome back to another episode here at the Odd Life Podcast. How's your day? Hope you're doing well. Uh, today, we're going to talk about books, but not just any books, but books that could possibly change your life. And I know they did that for me. And if they did it for me, they can do that for you. I know that saying these books could change your life is quite a bold statement, but they truly have done that for me. They've helped me work on things that I think I've been dealing with my whole life, like limiting beliefs, past trauma, self-confidence issues, things like that, to more recent things like anxiety and stress. I've got four books that I want to share with you, but I'm only going to cover one today. I don't want to overwhelm you, and I want to make this information more digestible. So we're going to do one book at a time. And this will not be a book report, I promise, but I'm going to share a little bit about the book and then how it impacted me, which you may be able to relate to, and hopefully it can inspire you to go check out the book for yourself. I truly think books are the next best thing to therapy, especially for me, um, followed by podcasts. They're just a wonderful resource for anyone. I mean, literally the only thing you need is the ability to read. That's it. You don't even have to have money to use these books as tools for self-improvement because you can go to the library and get them for free. So all four of these books I'm going to share with you in these this podcast episode and then and then upcoming ones, they all came to me after seeing them or hearing about them multiple times. So I took the hint, grabbed them, and I really think they were divine intervention for sure. So this first book I'm going to talk about, I read this in 2015. It is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. If you've never read it, I want to share what's so good about it and why you need to have it in your life. I think it's, it's definitely a book to read at least once in your lifetime. I've given this to my daughter, uh, as a graduation present from college. I think it's one of those books that can be read by any age group. This is a famous quote. She, she starts the book with, and this is where the title came from. It's a quote from Theodore Roosevelt. And it goes like this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. All right, again, that's by Theodore Roosevelt. The description goes on to say, Every day we experience the uncertainty, risks, and emotional exposure that define what it means to be vulnerable or to dare greatly. Whether the arena is a new relationship, an important meeting, 
our creative process, or a difficult family conversation, we must find the courage to walk into vulnerability and engage with our whole hearts. In Daring Greatly, Dr. Brown challenges everything we think we know about vulnerability. Based on 12 years of research, she argues that vulnerability is not weakness, but rather our clearest path to courage, engagement, and meaningful connection. So I love this book because it was something that at that time I was feeling really vulnerable about like my writing and what I wanted to do, um, being a parent. There's just a lot of different aspects of my life that I was feeling really out of sorts. I was stuck kind of at this point in my life. And this was one of those books that helped me get more unstuck uh, in the book. So the first lesson right away came even from the introduction. She shares what vulnerability is and what it isn't. Vulnerability is being open and authentic. But for me, being vulnerable felt like I was exposing a wound or like being naked in a room full of strangers. I had been raised in an environment that did not encourage sharing our feelings. We actually avoided them at all costs. In order to avoid feeling anything, I had to wear like an armor. This armor helped me feel comfortable. It made me feel safe. And honestly, being vulnerable felt a little counterintuitive. Like, why would I ever want to volunteer myself up like that? Like, that's like the whole Hunger Games volunteering to be a tribute. No way. Being vulnerable felt like being weak. It felt like risking exposure to the real me. The one that people would for sure reject, not like, whatever. And it felt like inviting all my fears into the room. But she explained that vulnerability begets vulnerability and courage is contagious. We could have a deeper connection because of it. And isn't that exactly what we all want? A deeper connection with the people around us. But I also learned what vulnerability isn't. And it isn't vomiting our whole life story onto someone who hasn't put in the time. (laughs) I've done that and it's been done to me and it's awful. I mean, for one, it's off-putting. I don't want someone to dump all their crap on me the minute after we meet. It feels very awkward and very overwhelming. And if I'm honest, it can make us feel a little bit like we've been violated. You know what I mean? So while I don't like it being done to me, I, I know I've done it to other people. She says vulnerability is based on mutuality that requires boundaries and trust. She gives a great example in the book that helped me to become more discerning in who I shared things with and when. She talks about a situation with her daughter, who at the time was in the third grade. She told her friend something embarrassing, and by lunchtime, all the girls in her little friend group knew about it. And when she came home, she told her mom this story, and her mom thought about her daughter's teacher. He had a marble jar in the class, and when the kids did something good, they would put a marble in the jar and they did something bad. Marbles came out. So good deeds, a lot of marbles, bad deeds, no more marbles. So she asked her daughter, she said, what if you looked at your friendships as the marble jars? And that really clicked with me. So I started using this in my own life. So when someone supported me, they were kind to me. They cheered me on. They stuck up for me. They shared something private with me. Marbles would go in, in their jar. If they did things that were the opposite of all that, marbles would come out. So the friend with the most marbles eventually got my time, my trust, and my friendship. It made a huge difference in my inner circle, and it's been my barometer ever since about what I share and, again, whom I share it with and when. My lesson was I have to wait for the full marble jars. I have to 
invest my time in putting marbles in other people's jars. And hopefully the ones that reciprocate, we're both going to have a great relationship because we both have full marble jars in the game. Another lesson from the book that came that changed me was understanding shame. I'd had a lot of self-worth issues and that my self-worth was attached to something that either I could produce or create. And a lot of times I would hold back on doing things because I was afraid of the rejection. I was afraid of the failure and didn't want to add to that feeling of lack of self-worth. And so I had like everything was attached to an outcome. So I'd held back, let's say, for example, on submitting articles to bigger publications. I didn't want the shame of being rejected. And then I would like go and read about, you know, all these famous authors and writers who had submitted their work to hundreds of places. And then the one place accepted, accepted their work. And then guess what? They're, you know, a New York Times bestselling author over and over again. And it took them the same situation, but they did it. They did the work. They put themselves out there. They learned from the rejections and they eventually reaped the rewards. Like I would create something so I could say that, you know, quote, unquote, I did it, but then I'd pull it back into the shadow again. So I didn't risk the shame of failure. Like, okay, I did this thing. I created this thing. I put it out there for a hot second and then I pulled it back. So I didn't have to face the fact that it was a failure or that I thought for sure it'd be, a, it'd be proof of failure. I can't fail if it's not out in the world. So I think I've been attaching my self-worth to these outcomes my entire life. And I think it came from when I was probably a kid. What I interpreted was rejection in my younger life that probably had nothing to do with me. So I interpreted maybe a parent's frequent absence that I was not worthy of love or attention. I interpreted that I needed to look a certain way in order to get attention. I saw that if I got good grades, I needed that to be seen and loved. I saw that if I didn't speak up or didn't have opinions, or I followed the old do not speak until spoken to rule, that it would show that I was obedient, that I was a good girl. So there was all these interpretations of my actions as creating an outcome. And then there's the anticipation of shame. Like if I produce this thing and no one likes it, I will feel shame. Therefore, let's not even do it, right? If I submit an article for a larger publication and it gets rejected over and over again, more shame. So if I didn't put myself out there, if I prevented myself from feeling joy, it was because the potential of shame was what kept me from trying. So when I read the book, I think I finally understood that the killer, like the the halting of my evolving, my innovation, my growing as a person to whom I wanted to be was all this shame that I was carrying around or this potential shame even. I had a lot of shame around feeling forgettable. And I think that again, things I mentioned earlier in my childhood, I felt like I was um, not seen, heard, or abandoned. I interpreted that as like a lack of worth. And later on in life, like for example, I'll never forget this. I was uh, at our neighborhood pool. And I think this was at the end of summer where the pool was still open, but the kids had gone back to school. I was pregnant with our youngest, uh, the middle, our middle one was, I think like three at the time. And then my daughter was in, was in uh, kindergarten. So she was off at school. We were at the pool and there was a mom there that I had met before a couple of times, either through, 
either from a school activity or mutual friends. And she acted like she'd never met me before. And the other mom that was there at the pool ended up introducing us again. And she, again, didn't remember me, didn't recognize me, which felt so shameful because I was like, God, am I that forgettable? And I swear it took about five times of quote unquote meeting this mom before she acknowledged me. But what I took away from this was that not that she had a shitty memory, I found like a reassurance that I was forgettable. Yep. Yeah. Here it is again. Totally forgettable. Even on my husband's business trips, I'd like re-meet people, which I had seen the, the year before. And I, oh, another confirmation that I was clearly a forgettable person. My self-worth down the toilet. I mean, did I do this to other people? Absolutely. The not remembering I'd met them before totally like bypassed my thought process, but I only saw them, you know, them forgetting me as the important part. So these constant affirmations that I was interpreting was that I was easily forgettable or not worthy of anyone's attention. And so I think that this created this need to create something grand or be better or be more so I could be worthy of people's time and attention. And it's probably why I gravitated towards social media when it first came out, because it helped me feel seen and heard. And I really didn't even care by whom. It just being seen by anyone felt validating of my existence. And so Brene talks about this thing she calls shame resilience, which is the ability to say, quote, this hurts, this is disappointing, maybe even devastating, but success and recognition and approval are not the values that drive me. My value was courage and I was courageous. So shame, you can fuck right off. Those are my words, not Brene's. But this lesson has been a tough one. And it wasn't probably until last year that I finally, I think, felt it all really click. And I never forget it. I was in Minneapolis visiting friends. I was driving to Modern Well, the co-working space that I absolutely love when I'm up there visiting. And I literally said to myself as I was driving there, I was thinking about this podcast. I was thinking about this thing I wanted to create. I had a vision and I felt this, you know, again, this fear of failure, things were coming up and again, attaching myself to an outcome. What if nobody listens? What if I'm, you know, speaking into a void, it flops, whatever. And I said this to myself out loud in the car. Like, what if I just create this for fun? What if I do this because it's just fun? Because it makes me happy when I do it. And then I immediately thought of this chapter, I'm daring greatly. I said to myself, what if you just created this thing even if nobody listens, that's not why I'm doing it. Not for the success, not for the recognition. You're doing it because you love meeting new people. You love having meaningful meaningful conversations. You love feeling creative. You love learning how to do new things. You love helping people. So if you made this podcast, you would get all those things. You would have your own happiness. You would have your own feeling of purpose. Like no one else can do that for me. And no matter how many people listen or follow along or don't listen. I'm doing what feels good right now. And that's enough. And so that moment right there gave me the courage to take the dream and make it a reality. And the shame of not being enough or not worthy of hosting a podcast or whatever that even means was no longer holding me back. Huge for me. Because a lot of times what I would do is I would think about something and then I would think about all the ways I would fail at it. And I'm like, why try? Why bother? And I would never do the thing. So many times, so many. Another lesson that I needed to understand was what my shield or my armor to protect me from being vulnerable 
what it was made of, and how I could learn how to set it down so I could get out of my own way. And Brene shares there's like these three parts that make up a common vulnerability shield, foreboding joy, perfectionism, and numbing. And you bet, I had all three. So foreboding joy is tied to scarcity, like something I knew very well. I've got scarcity down pat. It's that feeling of waiting for the other shoe to drop, like expecting bad things to happen because we don't expect good things to last. Like I would be almost morbid in the way I would think. I would play like horrible scenarios in my head where my kids were harmed and like what, how I would react and how I'd handle it. What would I do? I'm like, why couldn't I just be a happy mom holding her child at the park on her hip? Like instead of picturing a stranger grabbing my child from the swings and taking off, like what, like, what was that about? It's crazy. I don't know if all moms do this, but it's just like, I had this constant, like too good to be true. If I thought enough about the bad things that could happen in my life, then I wouldn't be cut off guard or somehow I'd be prepared for it. Antidote for that, Brene says, is to practice gratitude. So I began writing in a journal every day, all the things I was grateful for. And they were not to be the big things like, oh, my health or my kid's health or whatever. They were the little things that would bring me joy. Little things in the day. I will never forget it. I'm sure I've said it a thousand times to people and people are like, okay, Hallie, with the squirrels, enough. But I remember sitting at the kitchen table, eating breakfast, not on my phone, looking outside and I watched a family of squirrels play tag around the tree right outside my kitchen windows and it was delightful. They were the cutest things like watching puppies play. It was so stinking cute. That made me happy. Going on walks on the trails you know, near my house in the fall and the leaves are coming down like snowflakes. That makes me happy. That makes me feel joyful. I remember the, I love you, mom. Have a great day. Sticky note left on my computer screen. That makes the gratitude journal. So things like that, it really helped me appreciate all that I did have and to stop looking for the potential disaster in every day. To know that what is in my life now is enough. That joy is all around me when I pay attention. And it was a total shift in my mindset for me that it became this thing where I started to become like hyper aware of what was happening around me. And I started looking for things that I could add to my journal that night. And it was a much more (laughs) wonderful way to go about my day. And that was just a way that I could let go of that constant negative loop in my head of, okay, this could go bad. Oof. I don't know. This is going too good. What's going to happen next? Like that was a ridiculous way to go through life. And that created the sense of scarcity. I have all kinds of things around me that were wonderful, but I wasn't paying attention. This taught me to do that. And it's changed everything. It's changed the way I see things. It just was such a relief, almost like a burden off my shoulders. Another part of my shield was perfectionism. Uh, Brene shares that perfectionism is not about striving for excellence. It's about seeking approval. She said, perfectionism is not the key to success, but that it actually hampers achievement. And I understood this perfectly. Perfectionism for me was correlated to the fear of failing and like a life paralysis and a lot of missed opportunities. I was missing out on an opportunity to become a better writer, how to edit better, revise better, have a better flow of words, whatever. But perfectionism was crushing my creativity and I was not showing up in the arena, as Brene says. I was just watching from the sidelines. And by trying to be perfect, I was also bringing in a lot of shame. If I didn't do that thing right or perfectly, here came the shame. So her antidote for that 
was to appreciate the cracks. That meant being more compassionate with myself, to stop chastising myself, to stop telling myself I sucked at you know X, Y, Z, or that I'm not smart enough or whatever. And that having these cracks actually meant that I was just human. We all have things about us that make us imperfect. Therefore, I am not alone. So I started catching myself when I went down this like self-berating path, or I was comparing my beginning to someone else's ending. They were once in my same spot. Therefore, they had to go through the growing pains like I was doing, and they didn't just magically appear with all their shit together. Because no matter what social media likes to try and make us believe, nobody ever has, nor will they ever have their shit together. It's not going to happen. The next part of my armor that I had to let go of was the numbing. And like I mentioned before, I learned to numb my feelings at a young age. We avoided feelings in our house at all costs. Uh, I would read a lot of books. I read to escape. I would spend a lot of time with my best friend at her house or doing anything with her as much as possible to avoid kind of what was happening at home. I'd watch a lot of TV, eventually start drinking alcohol. Eventually it was scrolling social media. Like these are all ways to numb. So I didn't have to feel the difficult stuff. It's the old like kind of burying our heads in the sand method of living. And she said something so profound that it changed me instantly. She said, if we numb the dark, we also numb the light. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. She said that we can't selectively numb emotion. If we do it to the bad, we also do it to the good. And it's kind of funny is I instantly thought about the pill. Being on birth control pill is kind of like that is that you don't feel high highs, you don't feel low lows, you just kind of like me through the whole thing. And I eventually got off the pill. If you listen to a couple episodes ago, I got off the pill um, and had my, my husband got a vasectomy. And oh my gosh, it was great to actually feel my body again. So I understood that kind of on a physical level, but I didn't really understand it on the emotional level. And I started to get more anxious as I got older. You know, I'd worry about the kids, you know, what they were up to, if they're going to end up going to college where they wanted to go, or if they were going to be able to play, you know, the sport they loved at a higher level, the things they want, like you want your kids to realize their dreams and you're just, gosh, I, I hope they get to do that. You worry about them. You worry about them staying safe, you know, not getting into a car accident, all the dumb parenting stuff you think and worry about. And then I worry about my marriage. And if we were doing it, you know, right. Uh, I worried that if I started going down this personal development path, would we deviate too far apart from each other? Would we be on the same path anymore? Like I, if I was changing too much, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? These are just a few examples of the dumb things I worried about, but it kind of caused this anxiety shitstorm in my head. I realized I had turned to certain things to avoid dealing with them. And wine was one of them. I would drink a glass of wine probably five nights out of the week. Uh, comfort food was another thing I would turn to. I mean, give me a large bowl of popcorn and a good show on Prime and damn, if that wasn't numbing at its finest. But what I realized was, you know, by reading this book, that I was numbing out the joy too. And so I decided to really feel all my feelings. I learned this technique from my friend, Katie Denowden. I'm going to have her on the podcast here in a couple of weeks, but she taught me how to process emotion. Perhaps it was, I got to fight with my kid. Let's say there's a, we have an argument. I've named it. It's anger that I'm feeling. It's in my chest. Maybe I'm feeling the color red and maybe it's shaped like a bowling ball. Okay, so I'm picturing this red bowling ball in my chest. So the the ideal visualization for this is to visualize it on a wave coming in, and then you watch it right out in the wave, like the wave takes it back out to sea. And the next wave comes in, and then you let the anger 
kind of float back out on the wave back out to sea. And you keep doing that until the anger dissipates and it's gone. So I felt all the emotion. I didn't push it away. I didn't do something to avoid it. I sat with it. Then that's not all. It was then looking at the emotion that I felt and addressing the cause. I mean, was it something I said? Did I interpret something wrong? Uh, did I project myself into the situation thing I hadn't dealt with yet? Or was I avoiding a vulnerable conversation? So when I could see what the trigger was, then I could address my behavior and reacting to that trigger. But it takes a lot of self-awareness and presence to do this. But over time, it got easier and easier. It's still not that easy, but I now have more tools to help me navigate the tough stuff. And what I've learned is that avoidance and numbing will just make the problem bigger and much, much worse than if I just dealt with it in the very beginning. I learned to feel the emotion, address the cause, and then really just stop trying to pretend it's not happening. And that's a heck of a way to go through life because then you feel everything. And I'd rather feel everything than feel nothing. So that's something that I really took away from the book as well. This last lesson, and there's more, there's many in this book. I'm just going to give you the kind of the top four. I mean, the whole book's a lesson basically. But this last lesson I'm going to talk about is that this phrase she uses called minding the gap. And I loved it because it's about paying attention to the space between where you are now, like where you're standing and where you want to go. And how this changed me, I was here in this place I, I was at the moment, like I was unhappy, I felt stuck, whatever, but I wanted to be there. And like, how was I going to actually get there? Like, how was I, how did me changing the way I lived going to get me there? And it was the strategy behind like mining the gap that Brene talks about. If I wanted to be a better mom, what steps could I take to get me from here to there? By being more mindful of how big that gap was in any area of my life, I could take intentional action to do things that close that gap between who I was now and who I wanted to become. And that's something else I was taught one time was this theory of like showing up as the highest version of myself in any situation. So like as a parent or as a friend or a spouse or a sister or whatever, all of these situations have gaps in like the practicing behavior that I'm doing and the aspirational behavior. So if I behave more like my aspirational self in the situation, then I was helping close that gap. So if I could do that more, then I could become the person I wanted faster. And so then the self-loathing remarks and the self-deprecating and all of that stuff started to go away because as my higher self, I would not talk to myself that way. What motivated me the most was to show up as the person I wanted my kids to be proud of. And so how I parented them started to change. So she's got this manifesto in the back of the book that honestly, it's great for parenting, but it's also something you can kind of read to yourself. Here it goes. The wholehearted parenting manifesto. Above all else, I want you to know that you are loved and lovable. You will learn this from my words and actions. The lessons on love are in how I treat you and how I treat myself. I want you to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. You will learn that you are worthy of love, belonging, and joy every time you see me practice self-compassion and embrace my own imperfections. We will practice a courage in our family by showing up, letting ourselves be seen, and honoring vulnerability. We will share our stories of struggle and strength. There will always be room in our home for both. We will teach you compassion by practicing compassion with ourselves first, then with each other. We will set and respect boundaries. We will honor hard work, hope, and perseverance. Rest and play will be family values as well as family practices. You will learn accountability and respect by watching me make mistakes and make amends. 
and by watching how I ask for what I need and talk about how I feel. I want you to know joy, so together we will practice gratitude. I want you to feel joy, so together we will learn how to be vulnerable. When uncertainty and scarcity visit, you'll be able to draw from the spirit that is part of our everyday life. Together we will cry and face fear and grief. I will want to take away your pain, but instead I will sit with you and teach you how to feel it. I will laugh and sing and dance and create. We will always have permission to be ourselves with each other. No matter what, you will always belong here. As you begin your wholehearted journey, the greatest gift that I can give to you is to live and love with my whole heart and to dare greatly. I will not teach or love or show you anything perfectly, but I will let you see me and I will always hold sacred the gift of seeing you, truly, deeply seeing you. I mean, isn't that so good? And when you look at it from a parenting standpoint, how could you not want to show up as your best self? Be more of who you are so that your kids can do the same. Like if I hide from myself, if I hide who I am, if I hide from the world, what are my kids learning? They're learning to do that. So when I saw it from a parenting perspective, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to do better. Because I want better for my kids. I don't want them to feel shame. I don't want them to feel their lack of worth. I don't want them to feel embarrassed by who they are. I don't want them to think vulnerability is a bad thing. And so I took that last part and realized, if not for me, for my kids. If you don't have kids, you could read that to yourself. Again, your highest self speaking to who you are right now. That's powerful. So I really hope you check out the book. It's again called Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. It was published back in 2012. Uh, I got this in 2015. I read it twice. It's another a great book that you will read over and over again. It's one you need to have on your shelf, the one you need to give to your kids, uh, share with your friends. It's life-changing for sure. So hope that helped. Hope that was something you could resonate with. I hope it inspires you to, to do the work and to dare greatly. How about that? All right, you guys have a wonderful day and we'll talk soon. Thank you again for being here. I am so grateful for your time. And if you liked what you heard, please head to where you listen to podcasts, rate and review so we can be found by other people. Please share on Instagram, your social media channels, wherever else you go so we can reach as many people as possible so they can meet these amazing women and hear these conversations. If you'd like to connect further, you can find me over at my website at halliesawyer.com or on Instagram. I'm usually going to be at uh, Hallie underscore Sawyer or The Odd Life, which is this podcast specific Instagram account. All right. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you soon.